So this is episode 11 of the Antarctic Cast, and today with me I have a guest to our show. It's Josh. Josh is currently working with meteorology in the station, but without further ado, I'll let him talk a bit about Trudet and let's see how it goes. So Josh, um, have you been to Antarctica before? How many times? Uh, yeah, so I've been to Antarctica once before. That was last season. Um, so it was pretty similar to this season in that it was about two and a half months. Um, and it was sort of, again, doing the, the meteorology program. But I've got a little bit extra on my on my plate this year that I'll maybe talk about later. Cool. And what time of the year did you go? Was it summer, winter? Yeah, so it was Antarctic summer. Uh, so I spent two and a half months without seeing a sunset. Um so yeah, the I remember just before we headed out, we, we were in Cape Town and we all sort of made an effort to kind of go and, and climb up Lion's Head to see the last sunset we'd see for two and a half months together and then sort of came back to the hotel. So yeah, it was here for two and a half months from start of December to the middle of February. Okay. And I assume that you enjoyed because you're here again. So what made you come back? Um, I think... So, the, I mean, the job was really interesting um, because I think it requires you to sort of challenge yourself and to to do a lot of different things. Um, so I wasn't just the guy doing observations. I was also the guy, you know, digging out instruments and trying to repair them. I was sort of learning you not work. I was working on the BA team, which is the breathing apparatus team. So they're the guys who... Um, have to basically don firefighting kit um, and compressed air so they can go into sort of smoky buildings and rescue people. Uh, we didn't have to rescue anyone, obviously, uh, which was nice, but it was it was quite fun practicing that, um, you know. Uh, so just kind of learning new skills, uh, being in this incredible place that not many people get to go to, um, and kind of challenging myself, I suppose, is, is what made me come back. You mentioned some experiments. Can you give the audience an idea of what kind of experiments you're dealing with or what sure. what are you talking about? Um, so just like any specific projects that I'm working on. Um, so we've got uh, something called the Dobson or the Dobson Ozone Spectrophotometer. That's uh, a sort of flagship of Halley Science, I suppose, um, because it was basically what was responsible for discovering the hole in the ozone layer over the Antarctic. Um, so that was back in 1985. Uh, oh, it might have been a little bit before, actually, but 80, 85 was when the paper was published. Um, so obviously they were pretty certain it was happening by that point. Mm. Um, so, yeah, they've, they've been doing ozone observations at Halley Base since about 1957 when it opened. Um, and so now it's what 2019, so that's that's 62 years now uh, of continuous-ish observations. Apart from when the station's been sort of abandoned for the winter in recent years. Um, so yeah, it's a really sort of prominent data set that we've got here. Um, and obviously now we know there is an ozone hole, so we're looking for signs of recovery now. Um, so there's some some vague indications that there is a recovery, but it's not yet statistically significant enough to talk about. Um, but yeah, so hopefully by maintaining that data set, we'll be able to kind of 
see signs of recovery. Um, and if we don't see signs of recovery, that will that will tell us something. That will tell us that you know somewhere in the world they're still producing these ozone destroying chemicals, CFCs. Um, yeah, so I, I went off on one there, but that's that's the Dobson. So that's one of the things we're responsible for. Um, there's a few different instruments in uh, a place called the CAS Lab, so the Clean Air Sector Laboratory, that's what that stands for. Um, what, what can I talk about in the CAS Lab? So one of the things that we're trying to do this year is do air sampling, um, literally putting air into glass bottles and then sending it back to the States, um, to NOAA. Um, which is their kind of oceanographic and atmospheric administration. Uh, so they collect basically sample bottles from all over the world um, and use it in a greenhouse gas analysing network. Um, so whenever you hear that, you know, parts of the world have crossed 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide, uh, that's that's the, where the data is coming from. Um, so again, it's a really it's a really cool thing to be a part of, you know, global monitoring of CO2 levels and and the kind of implications that, you know, result from that, uh, uh, yeah, pretty, um, how would you describe it, pretty scary. Um, but, but it's, you know, obviously great to be contributing to that. Um, yeah, those are, those are two of the things that I'm involved with. And for instance, this data takes a lot, a lot of time to make to the US and then mm -hmm. to be analyzed. Yeah, is this like a yearly data set that they are trying to collect, or? Yeah, uh, I mean, with somewhere like Halley, where it's not manned for nine months of the year, um, and you know we realistically we only get to ship stuff out to them once a year, um, it it would be sort of acquired on a yearly basis, and if you know. I, I can't imagine there is, but there if, if there is somewhere that's more remote than Halley, um, then I suppose they just add it to their data set later, um, you know, sort of continually adjusting it as they go. Mm -hmm. So you talked a bit about meteorology. Mm -hmm. Do you want to introduce a previous works or what did you study to make into Antarctic position and to be here? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so I suppose my background initially was in physics. Uh, I did uh, an undergraduate master's degree, so four years of study in physics in Bristol, uh, which was great, really enjoyed that. Um, but physics is quite a broad topic, so I, I kind of didn't really know where I wanted to go with well, my working life after that. Um, a lot of physicists go into finance, a lot go into um, academia, um, a lot go into, well, all sorts of things really, um, programming and lots of other things. Um, so I was looking around at the job market and sort of scratching my head and wondering what to do. Um, and I knew a couple of people who were in the Met Office. Uh, these are people I knew through my parents. So I kind of had a chat to them and it sounded like it was an interesting job and you got to travel a bit. Um, so I applied for the Met Office to be a forecaster and then got in after uh, you sort of do two or three different interviews and then for six months they train you in meteorology so that's where my meteorological background comes from mm -hmm. and then after that I had about three years of forecasting so you're trying to apply some of the theory that you know to 
to real world environments, um, which, as anyone who's tried to apply theory knows, doesn't always work. Um, so, yeah, I had, I had about three years of, of practical experience with meteorology, so doing a bit of observing uh, in places like Ascension Island, which is a, a small little island in the middle of the South Atlantic. Um, and sort of through that, particularly Ascension Island, I suppose, because it's a remote location, which is one of the things that was on the job description for Antarctica, and also they wanted people with an experience of observing the weather. That's kind of how I, I got in through the door at Bass, um, which is something that I'd kind of heard about and been tempted by for a while. Um, so put the application in and, and got the job, yeah. And how does the weather forecasting compare from the mainland UK to Ascension Island to Antarctica? Um, Is it like, can you use the knowledge from one to the other? Are the models similar? I would say the models are very different. Um, so obviously the weather is massively different between somewhere like Ascension and Antarctica. Um, and it's quite different between the UK and Antarctica, but um, Ascension is a tropical island, um, so you get the odd rain shower there, but and a very occasionally you get a violent, violent thunderstorm, whereas in Antarctica, thunderstorms are basically unheard of. Um, there's just not enough energy, uh, not enough energy in the water, so um, you need convection, so that normally comes from either heating of the land or from really warm seas, uh, and Antarctica doesn't really have either of that in, in any great abundance. So, whereas Ascension, obviously it's sort of in a tropical ocean, so you've got a massive great heat source there that can generate convective currents in the air. Um, so another thing that I would maybe say about differences between forecasting in UK, Ascension, Antarctica, is the amount of data that you've got. Um, so the UK is sort of covered in meteorological stations. Um, Ascension, being in the middle of an ocean, is not. Um, and Antarctica, equally, being so remote and having so few people operating here is not, you know, covered in observing stations where, you know, they get the data that feeds the models. So, you know, you need these starting conditions that come from, um, from observa observations, basically. So... Yeah, I I think as a result, the sort of quality of the forecasts that come out are, are not quite as good. Um, but that's, I mean, that's part of the reason that we're here to sort of improve. It's the best effort yeah, that exactly. can be done here. Yeah, yeah. And, um, okay. So you mentioned the projects you were involved in your background. Um, are there some scientific fun facts you want to share that you think people might be interesting about? I don't know, anything in Antarctica? Um, one of the things that kind of surprised me, I don't, I don't know if this counts as a, a fact exactly, but on Halley specifically, I very quickly found that you can't trust the ground beneath you because you're not on solid rock. You're on this ice sheet that sort of is continually moving out to sea. Um, and on top of that, there's no sort of base level of the ground there's accumulation from snowfall and from blowing snow and drifting snow where it sort of builds up in funny places. And if you leave stuff on the ground, particularly anything made of metal or anything painted black, it can quite quickly melt into the snow 
uh, and get covered up and just disappear forever. So, you know, you put a screwdriver down on a, on a hot sunny day um, and then you go off and sort of, you know, work on, uh, for example, a, a weather station or something. Um, and then you sort of look around 20 minutes later and this screwdriver is about 10 centimetres deep into the snow. And if you'd left it for an hour or two, you might never have seen it again. Um, so, yeah, the ground is, is you, you sort of have to change your thinking about what the ground is, <laughs> which is not something that I was particularly used to. You know, in the UK, the ground is the ground. Like, it doesn't move. It's the ground. But here, you're on this floating ice shelf where the ground is moving. And not only that, it's sort of going up and down, depending on melt and what's drifting around. So uh, it, it takes a sort of mental shift, I think, to get used to that. Yeah, also the snow conditions vary, so mm. if it's cold or hot, the penetration of the ground is much bigger or much smaller, it's harder as ice or yeah. also very fluffy depending on, on the conditions. Yeah, some days you're sort of walking along and it, it feels like you're on proper a proper surface and some days you every step you take you sort of go into your, go into the snow about up to your shins or so. and Like quicksand. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And okay, so we talked a lot about science and to give the audience a bit of a break and let's ask you, what do you do in your free time in Antarctica? Uh, so in my free time, I quite enjoy playing board games. There's a lot of board games down here. Mm -hmm. um, I find you get to know the temperaments of your colleagues quite well by playing board games. <laughs> 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 some for, people, for good or worse, right? Exactly, yeah. Some people you discover are very competitive some people you discover are very laid back. Uh, so it's interesting to find that out in an environment where, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, it's just for fun. For, for most people, anyway. <laughs> for some people, it's life or death. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's one of the things I do. Another thing I do is I like playing guitar. Um, so every year at Halley, uh, and at Rother, actually, they have what's known as folk night, where they have people perform or read poetry or tell jokes or, or do any kind of act they, they feel like doing. Um, so I quite like playing guitar and um, seeing if I can figure out something that would be fun to play for people, you know. And there are some instruments in the station or do you bring your own instruments? Yeah, there's, there's instruments here. Um, it's possible but quite difficult to bring your own instruments. Um, we've got quite limited weight that we can take with us and, and take back. Um, so it's sort of easier to keep them on station and just have them communal for everyone rather than having people, you know, bring down three or four guitars every year and ship them back all the time. Um, and this is also similar to ski gear, to books, to... There's quite yeah. a number of stuff in the station so people don't have to use their clothes and other, like, scientific cargo for things they might use for entertainment. Yeah, exactly. Um... You know, tons of things are provided by the station so that, you know, you don't need to bring down your entire life just for two months or two and a half months. You know, we've got bedding and towels and, uh, as you say, loads of entertainment books and instruments. And um, we've got ping pong table and a pool table. Not that anyone would bring that down with them, but, um, yeah, just sort it, of... It's good to have, yeah. Yeah, communal entertainment for the station, which is, you know, a massive boost for morale and... Um, and as you say, sort of makes the whole process a bit more efficient in terms of what people bring with them. Yeah, absolutely. Also, you have to think that people, or many people in the station, they came here for years, 
there's nothing to do for two months it's it's very bad for many aspects people might get bored mm -hmm. you might lose very good talents or mm. also you want your employees to be happy and it's already a harsh environment so it's good to have some some quality of life mm -hmm. yeah so I've, I've brought a couple of things down with me that I'd like to try and get better at um, I can't remember what the second one is, which means I'm probably not going to do it in the two and a half months over here. But I brought you had a, a Rubik's, Rubik's cube. I right? brought a Rubik's cube. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Carson, one of the engineers who was here last year, he he gave me or lent me a Rubik's cube. So I've got to figure out how to solve it by the time I get back. So that that's one of my my little challenges to keep myself entertained. Have you have you got anything like that? Um, I was thinking about trying to um, learn how to walk in my hands. Okay. Can uh, you already do handstands? No. no. Okay, so you, I mean, we've assisted by the wall, yes, but okay. So, but presuming that's the first step, right? You've got to be able to do a handstand on your own first, and then yeah, it's, from it's, that you can walk. It, it, it's an ambitious goal, but it's also not that strict. It's just something I'm I'm curious about knowing okay. uh, at some point in life. But the other big goal that I have is to do twenty pull-ups in a row, which seems like quite trivial. But I learned mm -hmm. that the process is not very linear, and you end up plateauing at some point. So the beginning is very good to get good at mm -hmm. so I started doing let's say five in a row and then I went up to ten yeah. and this was no hassle mm -hmm. and then when I start getting to the 14s then I couldn't go any further so I'm still battling this for over a month actually I started way before moving to Halle right. but uh, the deadline is the end of the year so let's see if I can the, get a bit closer the deadline is the yeah. start of 2020 yes so you are yeah. under a month to, uh, a to month. get it from 14 to 20 right and it gets harder and harder so well I'm not that optimistic but I'm doing my best and let's see what happens okay if it doesn't happen then I just push the deadline <laughs> I suppose that's the thing with self-imposed deadlines yeah. they're not very strict <laughs> yeah yeah it's not like uh, you have to do it well you, you kind of have to it's better than if you don't have a deadline mm -hmm. you can always bail out and negotiate with yourself but in this one uh, it's a bit harder because like I, I have a, a person doing accountability to me so yeah. like if I don't match the goal oh, you have I'm, somebody that keeps you accountable yeah yeah okay exactly so, so it's not an issue that you've told everyone on a podcast that you're going to do it now. It, it is kind of an issue but uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah do you have any final remarks or things you like to add uh, that's quite broad um, what would I like to add um, who like who who are the listeners for this? Is it just I don't know anyone? People I post on my Facebook, friends okay. or friends. I actually have no feedback on who listens to that. Okay. But uh, thanks for listening in any case. Yeah. Thank, thank you to all the listeners. Yeah. Um maybe your friends I I send you a link. That's true. That would be nice. Share. Yeah. Um well, okay, in that case my final remarks are hello everyone back home. Uh thanks for listening to me and Michelle Waffle on for how long has it been? Twenty minutes? Mm, let's check. Yeah, about. Okay, yeah. So so thanks to all who've, who've listened and, uh, you know, enjoy life wherever you are. Yeah, and see you in the next one. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.